Part 17 of Works of Sallust. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chester. Works of Gaius Celestius Crispus. Translated by Alfred W. Pollard. Uger Theme War Part 8 About the same time Bamosar, at whose instigation Jugurtha had begun the surrender which he afterwards abandoned through fear, having incurred the king's suspicion and being suspected by him in turn, was now desirous of a change of affairs. After wearying his mind day and night in seeking some plot to work Jugurtha's destruction, he at last, in the course of his innumerable efforts, took to himself as an accomplice a noble named Nabdalsa, a man of great wealth and beloved and esteemed by his countrymen, who generally held an independent command, and carried out all tasks which Jugurtha, either from weariness or from attention to weightier matters, had left unfulfilled. In this way he had acquired both renown and wealth. By agreement between the two conspirators, a day was fixed for their treachery. Everything else they thought best to arrange at the moment, as occasion might demand. Nabdalsa set out for his army, which, according to his orders, he was keeping between the outer stations of the Romans, to prevent the enemy from ravaging the country with impunity. Confounded by the greatness of the crime, he did not appear at the time agreed on and his cowardice prevented the execution of the plot. Balmosar was eager to carry out his designs, but at the same time was disconcerted by the timidity of his accomplice. Fearful lest, now that Naldavsa had abandoned his original plan, he might form some new one, he dispatched a letter to him by trusty messengers. In this letter, after reproaching him for his lack of resolution and energy, and calling to witness the gods by whom he had sworn, he warned him not to turn the bribes of Metellus to his destruction, and showed that Jugurtha's ruin was near at hand, and that the only question was whether he should perish by their courage or by that of Metellus. Nabdalsa should consider, therefore, whether he preferred rewards or a miserable death. When this letter was delivered, Nabdalsa happened to be fatigued and was resting on a couch. After acquainting himself with the message of Balmosar, at first anxiety and then, as often happens, sleep took possession of his troubled spirit. In his service was a certain Numidian who took charge of his affairs, much trusted and esteemed by him, and the sharer in all but this latest of his designs. Hearing that a letter had been brought, and custom making him think that his own help and ability would be needed, this man now entered the tent, took the letter while his master slept, as it lay carelessly on a cushion above his head, read it through, and, learning the treachery intended, hastened to the king. Shortly afterwards Nabdalsa awoke, and, on failing to find the letter, understood exactly what had happened. At first he tried to overtake his betrayer. Then, finding the attempt fruitless, he approached Jugurtha, 
with the object of appeasing him, declared that the treachery of his retainer had anticipated the step which he had himself determined to take, and tearfully besought him by their friendship and by the proofs which he had hitherto given of his loyalty not to suspect him of such an enormity. Dissembling his real feelings, the king returned him a mild answer. After putting to death Balmosar and many others whom he discovered to have shared in his treachery, he seems to have stifled his anger for fear, lest the matter might give rise to a rebellion. From that time no day or night brought peace to Jugurtha. He never trusted place, man, or season, feared his countrymen no less than the enemy, pried into every corner, and was terrified at every sound. At night he rested, sometimes at one place, sometimes at another, often where it little fitted his royal dignity, and now and again, on waking from sleep, would seize his arms and raise an outcry, so tormented was he by a terror which verged on madness. On hearing from the deserters of the fate of Balmusar and the betrayal of the plot, Metellus once more made every preparation and hastened to renew the war. Marius was wearying him as to his departure and was at the same time hateful and hostile to him personally, thinking him therefore an unsatisfactory lieutenant he dismissed him home. At Rome, the commons, on learning the purport of the letters which had been dispatched on the subject of Metellus and Marius, have very readily believed the characters respectively assigned them. The noble birth, which had hitherto been an honor to the general now, made him unpopular, while humble descent brought his rival into favor. In each case, men's judgment was guided rather by party spirit than by the good or bad qualities of these two officers. Turbulent magistrates, moreover, excited the crowd, impeached Metellus at every public meeting, and exaggerated the merit of Marius. At last, the commons were so aroused that all the artisans and country people whose fortunes and credit lay only in their hands abandoned their work to attend on Marius and thus postpone their own necessities to his dignity. The nobility were defeated, and the consulship, after many years, was entrusted to a man of no birth. Later on, the tribune of the commons, Titus Manlius Mancinius, demanded of the people whom they wished to conduct the war with Jugurtha and in a full assembly the people ordered that Marius should have the command. I should mention that, a little before this, the Senate had decreed that Gaul should be his province, but this measure was useless. At the same time, Jugurtha, who had lost his friends, many of whom he had himself put to death, while of the rest, some in their terror had escaped to the Romans, others to King Bacchus, now found that it was impossible to carry on the war without lieutenants. Amid such treachery, however, on the part of his old officers, he thought it dangerous to try the loyalty of new ones, and was changeable and uncertain in his plans. 
Discontented with every man, measure, and counsel, he changed his route and his officers from day to day, marched now against the enemy and now into desert places, often rested his hopes in flight, and then, a moment afterwards, in arms. He doubted whether he could trust the courage or the loyalty of his countrymen the less, and thus, to whatever quarter he turned, found everything opposed to him. While he was in this state of inactivity, Metellus suddenly appeared at the head of an army, and Jugurtha equipped and marshaled the Numidians as well as time would allow, and the battle then began. In the quarter where the king was taking part in the fight, the conflict lasted some time. The rest of his troops were all driven back and routed at the first charge. The Romans captured a considerable quantity of standards and arms, but only a few prisoners, for in all their battles the Numidians, as a rule, are protected rather by their feet than their swords. By this defeat, Jugurtha was led to still deeper distrust of his fortunes. Taking with him the deserters and a part of his cavalry, he made his way to the waste and thence to Thala a large and wealthy town where he had great treasures and where his sons were passing their boyhood amid much splendor when metellus discovered this movement although he knew that between thala and the nearest river there lay fifty miles of parched and barren desert yet in the hope that by gaining possession of the town he might put an end to the war he applied himself to surmount every difficulty and conquer even nature herself. He ordered all the beasts of burden to be relieved of their packs with the exception of provisions for ten days, and that only skins and other vessels suitable for holding water should be carried. He collected also from the fields as many trained oxen as he could, and on these placed vessels of every description, but mostly wooden which he had got together from the huts of the Numidians. He then ordered the men of the neighborhood, who, after the king's defeat, had made submission to Metellus, to bring each of them as much water as he could, and announced the day and place for them to appear. He himself loaded his beast from the river, which, as I mentioned above, was the nearest water to the town, and thus equipped set out for Thala. On arriving at the place where he had enjoyed the Numidians to meet him, the camp was hardly pitched and fortified when suddenly so much rain is said to have fallen from the heavens that this alone provided the army with water enough and to spare. Their supplies too surpassed their expectation, for the Numidians, like mostly newly submitted peoples, had exceeded the services required of them. The soldiers, however, from a religious feeling, preferred to use the rainwater, and its fall added greatly to their courage by making them think themselves under the protection of the immortal gods. On the next day, to the surprise of Jugurtha, they made their way to Thala. The inhabitants, who had deemed themselves protected by the difficulties of the country, were astounded by so great and unusual a feat. They prepared, however, for the conflict with undaunted energy, and our men did the same. The king now believed that nothing was impossible to Metellus, 
whose energy he had seen overcome all things, arms and weapons, situations and seasons, and even nature herself, who ruled all other men. He therefore made his escape from the town by night, taking with him his children and a great part of his money. Henceforth he never abode in any place for longer than a single day or night, pretending that he was hurried away by business, but really from fear of treachery. This he thought he might avoid by the quickness of his movements, as such designs require leisure and a favorable occasion for their achievement. To return to Metellus, on seeing that the townspeople were ready for battle, and at the same time that the town was protected both by its works and its situation, he surrounded the walls with a rampart and ditch. He then pushed forward mantlets at the most suitable points that offered, threw up a mound, and by erecting towers on it, protected his work and his helpers. To meet these measures, the townspeople were active in their preparation. Nothing and fine on either side was left undone. At last the Romans, wearied by much previous toil, and by the battles they had fought, on the fortieth day after their arrival, gained possession of the town. And that alone, all the booty had been destroyed by the deserters. These, on seeing that rams were battering the wall, and that their fortunes were ruined, brought the gold, silver, and whatever else was of highest value to the royal palace. There they laden themselves with wine and the banquet, and then destroyed the booty, the house, and their own lives by fire. They thus voluntarily paid the very penalty which they had feared to receive from their enemies in case of defeat. Simultaneously with the capture of Thala, deputies had come to Metellus from the town of Leptis, beseeching him to send thither a garrison and governor. According to their account, a certain Hamilcar, a man of good birth and intriguing disposition, was eager for a change in affairs, and the commands of the magistrates and the authority of the law were powerless against him. Should Metellus delay their safety, allies of Rome, as they were, would be in the greatest danger. The people of Leptis, I should mention, long before this, at the very beginning of the war, had sent to the council Bestia, and subsequently to Rome itself to request friendship and alliance. On obtaining their prayer, they remained ever honest and loyal, and had strenuously carried out all the commands of Bestia, Albinius, and Metellus. The general therefore readily granted their petition, and sent to their town four cohorts of Ligurians and Gaius Annius as governor. Leptis was founded by Sidonians, who, as I learned, were exiled on account of internal dissensions, and came to these parts by sea. It is situated between the two Syrtes, whose name was given from their nature. These are two bays which lie almost on the verge of Africa of unequal size but like character. Near land they are very deep. Elsewhere, as it chances, in some places deep, in others, when a storm is blowing, full of shoals. 
when the sea gets high and struggles with the wind the waves draw down mud sand and huge stones and thus the appearance of these parts changes with every change of the wind it is this power of suction from which they are called surities intermarriage with the Numidians changed nothing more than the language of the people of Leptis the greater part of their laws and civilization is Sidonian and this they have the more easily retained owing to their distance from the king's government for between them and the more populous part of Numidia lay many miles of desert as the affairs of the people of Leptis have taken me into these regions it seems not unbecoming to record a splendid and memorable deed of two Carthaginians of which the mention of the country has reminded me in the period when the Carthaginians were rulers over the greater part of Africa Cyrene also was a great and wealthy city the intervening country was sandy and monotonous without river or mountain to mark the boundary of their dominions this fact kept them in a desperate and prolonged war armies and fleets had often been defeated and routed on either side and each had considerably impaired the other's strength at last in the fear lest some third power should presently attack both victors and vanquished in their exhausted condition they agreed in a time of truce that on an appointed day deputies should set out from either city and the place where they met beheld the common boundary of the two peoples two brothers called the Philani were sent from Carthage and these made good speed in their journey the progress of the Cyrenians was slower whether through laziness or accident I have not clearly ascertained for in these parts storms are as wont to delay the traveler as on the sea gathering as it sweeps across the flat and lifeless country the wind tosses up the sand from the soil and this is then blown along with tremendous force and fills the face and eyes and hinders progress by shutting off all view the Cyrenians saw that they were somewhat behindhand and in their fear of being punished on their return for their failure accused the Carthaginians of having left home before their time tried to upset the whole proceedings and in fact showed a determination to do anything rather than come off the worst the Carthaginians then asked them to propose any other terms so long as they were fair and on this the Greeks gave them their choice of either being themselves buried alive at the point where they demanded that their country's boundary should be set or allowing them to advance as far as they like on the same condition the Philani approved of these terms and sacrificed their own persons and lives to the public good accordingly they were buried alive the Carthaginians dedicated altars to the brothers on the spot and other honors were ordained to them in the city I now return to my subject after the loss of Thala Jugurtha thought he had no sufficient safeguard against Metellus 
he set out, therefore with a few companions, and made his way through vast deserts to the Gaetulians, a wild and uncivilized tribe. At that time ignorant of the name of Rome, of this people he collected a host, and in a short time accustomed them to keep the ranks, follow the standards, obey commands, and behave in other respects like regular soldiers. Beside this, by means of great gifts and greater promises, he prevailed on those immediately about King Bacchus to be zealous in his service, and with these to aid him approached the king and induced him to take up arms against the Romans. This task was the more easily and readily accomplished inasmuch as Bacchus at the outset of this war had sent an embassy to Rome to ask for a treaty of friendship. The conclusion of such a treaty, which would have been most advantageous for the war then newly begun, was prevented by the blind avarice of a clique accustomed to sell every service, whether honorable or the reverse. Bacchus, moreover, had previously married a daughter of Jugurtha. Through this tie is held of slight importance among Numidians and Mauritanians, inasmuch as every one has as many wives as he can afford, some ten, some more, and the kings a proportionately greater number. The mind is thus distracted by numbers. No wife holds the place of a partner, but all are held equally cheap. The two kings now assembled their armies at a place they had agreed on. Pledges were then given and received, and Jugurtha roused the spirit of Bacchus by an harangue. The Romans, he said, were unjust, a fathomless greed, and the common enemy of all peoples. They had the same reason for a war with Bacchus as with himself and other races, their lust, namely for empire which made them see an enemy in every kingdom. It was now himself who was the Roman foe. A little before it had been the Carthaginians, then King Perses, and thereafter it would always be the richest victim they could find. After these and similar speeches, they determined on a march against the town of Serta, as the place where Metellus had deposited his spoil, captives and heavy baggage, Jugurtha thought that they would either be rewarded by the capture of the town, or that should the Romans advance to its relief, a battle would be fought. In his crafty policy, the only thing for which he was eager was to lessen Bacchus' chance of peace, lest if there should be any procrastination, he might prefer some other course to war. End of Yuga Theme War Part 8